if you would, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 66. Um, we are uh, finishing up uh, the gospel according to Luke, and uh, next Sunday will be our, our, our last Sunday uh, looking at, uh, at this story of, of, of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. We'll get to that next week. Um, so uh, as you're turning, Luke 22, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry, the, the scriptures will be up on the screen behind me. Uh, but as you're turning, um, I'll confess this. The last few weeks as I've been preparing for uh, this message, there's been this song rolling around in the back of my brain. Um, it's a song uh, by the artist known as Pink. Um, some of you might uh, not think of, of me as a, a, someone who likes to listen to Pink, uh, but I like to destroy your stereotypes. Um, <clears throat> but uh, uh, Pink is not somebody who would identify herself even as a person of faith, let alone as a Christian. And yet she sings a song that um, is uh, it's a, it's a, a directly talking to God. It's, it's, a, it's a confrontation, essentially, uh, between her and God. And when you listen to the lyrics, you can hear the accusations that are there, specifically three accusations she levels. The first, uh, God, you're not good. God, you're not good. Secondly, uh, God, you're, you're, you're not in control. You're not powerful. In other words, you're not great. And thirdly, uh, you're, you're not worth submitting to, you're not worth worshiping, you're, you're, you're not glorious. Right? Now, we might um, hear that and think, well, um, that seems disrespectful, that seems irreverent for a human being to, to speak that way to God. Um, and yet, when you open up the pages of Scripture and you read places like in Job or you read lament psalms from David, you, you see that God is okay with our accusations. It seems like his pride can handle it, and he even welcomes it. And, and here's, when I, when I look at this, I see a glimmer of hope here. Um, and, and the hope is, is this, at least she's talking to God. Right? At least she's, she's directing something at, at him. Right? Um, if you have a broken relationship with somebody, the worst thing that you can do is pretend like it's not broken. The worst thing you could do is sweep it under the rug. The worst thing you could do is, is, is ignore it or ignore the other person. Better to confront than to ignore. And so at least she's doing that. But I want to I read the, the lyrics to you and, and listen to those accusations. You sold us down the river too far. What about all the times you said you had the answers? But what about all the broken happy ever afters? What about all the plans that ended in disaster? What about love? What about trust? What about us? And she concludes, we were willing, we came when you called, but man, you fooled us. Enough is enough. And before you get too critical, have you ever felt that way? If you could have God alone in an interrogation room, what would you say? You look at the news of this week, whether what's going on in your personal life or, or what's going on in the world around you, another school shooting, three nine-year-old children dead. What about that, God? What about that? The, the, the accusations can come. The accusations should come. The confrontation should happen. I, I would argue that humanity needs a confrontation with God. And the reality is, is either we will confront God or God will confront us. But a confrontation needs to happen. 
between us and God. Now, when we tend to think of that confrontation, we tend to think of Judgment Day. We tend to think of, of the picture of Revelation. We tend to think of, of human beings standing before the judgment seat of, of God. Uh, we, we tend to think maybe of, like, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. What we see in the passage today is actually the reverse. What we see is what R.C. Sproul called God in the hands of angry sinners. As it's not humanity who is going to stand before the judgment seat of God, but it's God who comes to stand before the judgment seat of humanity. That God in Jesus Christ, the, the incarnate Son of God, comes to us. He's born as, as we are born, and he lives as we live, and he laughs, and he, and he loves people, and he cries, and he, he shares meals, and, and he, he's a fully human being. And he comes, but he puts himself into our hands. And what we see today is this Jesus, this Son of God, placing himself into the hands of angry people. And the question is, what do they do with him? Now, I, I, my hope is this morning is that we would see this as, as representative of us. Right? Before I, I expand on that, I, I want to I mention this. It is, it is one thing to confront God. It is, a, it is another thing to forget ourselves in that confrontation. If we are going to confront God, we should do it in a way that it pursues the truth but also has an accurate picture of ourselves. And though I, I applaud Pink for, for starting the conversation, there's one aspect of her song that bothers me. And that's when it, when it comes to, to, to her accusations, her, her accusations against God is you're not good, you're not great, and you're not glorious. But when it comes to how she defines herself, what does she say? She says uh, this at the beginning of the song, we are searchlights we can see in the dark. We are rockets pointed up at the stars. We are billions of beautiful hearts. What is she saying about herself? God, you're not good, you're not great, you're not glorious, but I am. Right? If you're, if you're going to have that confrontation with God, uh, don't forget to have a realistic view of yourself. In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see Jesus on trial. We're going to see Jesus, this God, placing himself in the hands of angry sinners. And we're going to see the, the, the Sanhedrin, the, this ruling um, a Jewish group of, of men. We're going to see uh, Pontius Pilate, the, the, the governor uh, uh, over, over the Jewish people in Ro uh, from Rome. Um, we're going to see a guy named Herod Antipas. And then lastly, we're going to look at a guy named Barabbas. But in all of these instances, Jesus is putting himself in, into their hands, and the question is, what will they do with him? Now, my, my hope this morning and my challenge for you is that the real question is, what will you do with him? That you, the, the, the goal is for you to put yourself into these people's places. That you see these people as representative of you. Look, this is a moment in history which the God of the universe took on flesh, and he came to us, he put himself into our hands, and he was on trial. Like, they are representative of all of humanity. So look at these Pharisees and, and Sadducees. Look at, the, at this, this Roman governor. Look at this, the, the, this Herod Antipas and see in them yourself. If you're new to, to the Bible or, or first time you know, you know, studying Scripture, you don't, you, you don't know a whole lot of Scripture yet, the, the, the thing that we, 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 we tend to do with, with Scripture is we look for representatives in Scripture, but only in positive lights. Like we look at the characters in the Bible and we lift them up and we look at their positive attributes, but we, we don't look at their negative attributes, especially as being true of us. So we'll look at like Abraham and we'll say, well, Abraham was a guy of faith. God said, go, and he went. And yet Abraham was also a guy who told his, his wife to act like his sister so that he could avoid trouble. 
He was a coward. You look at David, and, and David, he was this honorable, courageous guy who stood up to giants, but he was also an adulterer and a murderer. So, you know, right? Like, so, so we'll look at certain characters in the Bible, and we're like, well, we'll follow that, but, but I'm not going to see any of that in me, right? Um, the, the need for us as human beings is to see these, the characters in scriptures as representative of us, especially the bad and the ugly, and this is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. He's talking to this church in Rome about Adam's being representative for us as Christ is representative for us. He says, you look at Adam, and because of Adam, sin and death entered the world. Because of the sins of Adam, we become enemies of God. And you could look at Adam and you could say, well, if I was in his shoes, I would not have made those decisions. You could look at Adam and say, I don't want to be identified with him. I don't believe that he represents me. But the reality is, is if Adam doesn't represent you, then Christ doesn't represent you. This is what Paul says uh, to, to those, those Romans. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. That's Adam's trespass, our first father. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's what Jesus does for us. As by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. See, if, if you won't identify yourself with, with these characters, these people in the Bible, good, bad, and ugly, then how can you identify with Jesus? And so that's the challenge for you this morning as we, as we walk through these trials, to, to see in them yourself and to see yourself in, in them. Um, I, I want to uh, repeat a quote from last week that, that, uh, that Jake put up there. Uh, a quote by Malcolm Muggridge. Said, he says, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Our depravity is so easy to prove. You could, you could look at the shooting last week and you could point the finger of God, but don't you also need to point the finger at the shooter? And why is that like the 86th shooting this year? The depravity of man is easily proved. And yet, intellectually, we're constantly trying to deny it. We'll point the finger at God and we'll point the finger at one another, but we very seldom point the finger at us. We hold ourselves in too high of esteem. And so the challenge, again, will you see yourself in these individuals? So let's dive in. Luke 22, beginning of verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led them away to their council. And they said... If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God? Then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. So Jesus has had a final meal with his 12 closest followers. One of them betrays him. Uh, he goes to a garden to pray, and it's where the, the, the betrayer brings soldiers to come and arrest him. Jesus is taken to uh, the courtyard of this high priest where he's sitting there waiting. And, uh, and one of his followers, uh, Peter, is, is across the courtyard there, uh, and, and he's asked three times what his affiliation is with this Jesus, and three times he denies knowing him. Um, a, a rooster crows and the sun comes up and here's when the trial begins. Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin. 72 uh, high priests and scribes, um, religious political leaders known as Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees sort of right-leaning, 
uh, conservatives, uh, Sadducees, sort of left-leaning liberals, um, their opponents religiously and politically, and yet they've united together in their hatred for Jesus. They've had him arrested, and now he's going to stand trial. And their question to him is, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the king that we've been waiting for? And Jesus' response is very telling. He said, if I tell you, you're not going to believe me. And if I pose a question to you, you won't answer me because this isn't a real trial. This is a farce. You brought me here to condemn me. You haven't brought me here because you want the truth. Your truth is already established. You're already, you're already holding to what you think is, is the truth. You've already made up your minds about me. This isn't a trial to get to the truth. This is a trial to get me to, to be executed. They're not after the truth. And, and how many of us, we approach God, and we're so willing to accuse him and accost him and shake our fingers at him, but our minds are already made up about God. That's their attitude towards him. So Jesus' response is, you will see the Son of God, Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power. He's referencing Daniel 7, which is this prophecy about a human who is also somehow divine, who stands before God the Father, and he's given all this power and authority. He becomes king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus is essentially saying, this is me. In fact, most of the first half of Luke is about Jesus establishing his identity as this son of man, the king of kings. This is me, Jesus says. And so they ask him, are you the son of God then? And, and Jesus' answer is, is really telling. He says, you say that I am. Literally what that means is, you said it, I didn't. You said it. The, the passage is dripping with irony. See, here's a group of people who think that they're working for God, have God in their midst, and don't recognize him as God. Here's a group of people that think they're working for God and according to his plan, but they're really working on their own plan. You see, the plan we see is, 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 has been going through, through, through all of uh, the second half of Luke. We see it in Luke 9. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and, and there I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be tried, and I'm going to be killed. But then I'm going to rise. This is the divine plan of God. This is what's going to happen. And it's this, this death and this resurrection that actually makes Jesus king. This is his coronation. This is what Jesus is going to. This is the divine plan. And what's interesting about this is they want his death because that's their plan, thinking they're going to destroy Jesus' plan, but they're also fulfilling Jesus. Like, it, it's crazy. They don't understand what it is that they're, they're doing. They're actually participating in the thing that they say they're trying to perfect. So this, uh, this trial ends. They say, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. Let's move on to the sentencing. So uh, the, these, these religious leaders desire a Jesus to be publicly executed. Um, now, uh, under Roman law, they couldn't um, order a person to, to, to be executed. Right? They didn't have that kind of authority. They needed to go to the Roman governor for that. That doesn't mean they couldn't have killed him. In fact, in Acts 7, that's the second book that Luke wrote, um, we read about a guy named Stephen. And Stephen is a follower of Jesus, and after Jesus' death and resurrection, um, he's telling people about Jesus. And the same people who wanted to kill Jesus now want to kill him. But rather than dragging him before uh, Pilate for a trial, they just pick up rocks on the spot and, and throw at the, those rocks until they kill him. They kill him on the spot, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't need to drag 
uh, Jesus to go see Pilate unless they wanted a public execution. But, but here's the kicker, and I don't want to go too much on a tangent on this, but this is, this is really fantastic. But when Stephen is dying, he says this. Um, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What did Jesus just tell the Sanhedrin? Right? He, he completes the plan. He dies, he rises, and he becomes the king of kings. And Stephen, as he's dying, sees a vision of it, and he sees this fact become his reality. Beautiful. Don't want to go off on a too big of a tangent. But the reality is, is that the, the Pharisees and, and Sadducees, they didn't need uh, Pilate to kill Jesus, but they needed Pilate to give Jesus a public execution. They needed Jesus to be raised up in front of the world and be humiliated and be shamed and be destroyed. In order to do that, they had to go to Pilate. So chapter 23, 1 through 5. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Um, Romans don't care about blasphemy. Like this whole notion of Jesus, he calls himself the Christ. To a Roman authority, they don't, they're not going to care about that. In order to get a, a, a capital sentence, the religious leaders need to convince uh, Pilate that Jesus has, has committed a capital crime. And so they bring three accusations. And the first accusation is he's, he started this rabble-rousing rebellion. Right? He's leading a rebellion. And, uh, and, and Pilate looks at Jesus and he's like, yeah, I don't see that. Well, the second act is, well, he's telling people not to pay tribute to Caesar. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. And again, Pilate looks at Jesus and, yeah, no. Well, the third, he calls himself a king. And, and, and at this point, Pilate looks at Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus says that really interesting line, you said it, not me. You said it. He is king. But... In Pilate's mind, is he a king who's actually going to try and overthrow Rome? Like, he, he knows what an insurrectionist looked like. He's got one held in, in prison right now. He, he knows what someone who's trying to, you know, have a coup and overthrow the government looks like, and it's not this Jesus. And so he comes back and he says, this man's innocent. So he, now he has this problem on his hands. You see, his job is to keep peace in one of the most violent cities of the day. Jerusalem was uh, always full of, of insurrections, people trying to overthrow Roman governing authorities. Jerusalem was a difficult place to govern. His job is to maintain the peace, to maintain control. And here's an individual who's innocent. Does he let the innocent man go and face the retribution from these religious leaders, or does he condemn an innocent man to appease him? Well, the religious leaders provide him a third option. They mention that Jesus ministered in Galilee. And to Pilate, like, well, that's great news because that's out of my territory. And that's not my responsibility. That's Herod's responsibility. He happens to be in town. Send Jesus to Herod. And so part two of the trial is put on hold and Jesus is, is, is taken to uh, Herod. Now, before we look at that, 
Um, we we kind of have to remember what we know already from the story of Luke about Herod. Herod Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. Uh, he ruled over just that that region of Galilee where Jesus did most of his his ministry for three years. Um, at one point, Jesus' forerunner, his friend John, uh, who, who went about telling people to get ready for Jesus, uh, when Jesus sort of steps onto the scene, John fades into the back, but he's still ministering and preaching and stuff. Well. Uh, he confronts Herod Antipas in the fact that he, he took his brother's wife. Antipas was uh, an, an incestuous, adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, and John called him out on that. Well, uh, John gets thrown in jail for that, and then John gets beheaded for that. Okay, so that's, that's Herod, nice guy. Now, um, Herod has also wanted to see Jesus. And we'll read that in, in, uh, in the text. Um, verse uh, eight. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him, so he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Herod's wanted to see Jesus because for three years he's heard stories about a guy who goes around and he heals people, and he takes little loaves of fish and bread and he feeds thousands, and he casts out demons, and he even heals people or raises people from the dead. Like, that's a guy who could put on a killer show, don't you think? So he, he wants to see Jesus in order to see some sign from him. He wants to, he wants to see Jesus, you know, perform a miracle in front of him. And so he's glad when Jesus is ushered in to his living room. But what happens? He's, he's deeply disappointed because Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even do a card trick. And on top of that, he doesn't even say anything deeply disappointed. But not to let this go to waste, at least he has somebody to humiliate. So he puts a robe, his own robe on Jesus and he has his soldiers uh, beat Jesus in the midst of all of his guests for entertainment. Um, uh, continue on. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Now, Interesting. Look at verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. It's amazing how Jesus just brings all sorts of people together. Right? The Sadducees and the Pharisees were, were religious and political opponents of one another, hated each other, but they united over their hatred of Jesus. And here's Pilate and Herod, and, you know, they don't hate Jesus, but he's certainly a thorn in their sides and a problem they need to get rid of. So they get to come together over this issue, too. Just interesting. Let's keep going. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, neither, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. <clears throat> Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Uh, the problem gets put back on, on Pilate's plate. He doesn't get to, to give the problem away to Herod. He has to deal with it. And so once again, he, don't, he doesn't want to kill an innocent man, uh, but yet he doesn't want to, uh, to, to make these very uh, influential re religious leaders, um, he, won't, he doesn't want to offend them. So uh, his, his third option is, well, I'm going to beat Jesus within an inch of his life. Um, he, he scourges uh, Jesus, um, which is a, a violently horrific beating that he gives to, to Jesus hoping that that would appease everybody. 
It doesn't. It doesn't. Now, um, now we'll, we'll, we'll continue on. Uh, verse 18. Um, but they all cried together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Uh, so we're introduced to the, that fourth person we talked about, Barabbas. Barabbas is the one who's actually guilty of insurrection. He's actually guilty for trying to overthrow Roman government. He's actually guilty of the crime, and he's going to be sentenced to death, and the religious leaders say, let's have him instead. Punish the innocent. Let the guilty go free. And so Pilate tries to appeal one last time. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Notice the intensity Notice the, the volume getting louder. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demands should be granted. If there's something that, that sums up the history of humanity, in an instant of, 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 of justice or injustice, what's the deciding factor? The mob's voices prevail. See, this, this scene, is, it's not just something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is something that is representative for all of humanity living in every single time and in every single place on this planet since the beginning. This is the climax of the story. We'll talk about verse 25 in a minute, but, but, but it's important that we see that what happened on that day in that trial is representative of all of us. The, the, the trial is, is, is not just the trial of Jesus, it's the trial of humanity. And the evidence against us going back to the beginning, and, and an angelic being is created that rebels against God. Uh, we, we read about it in Isaiah 14, where it says this, How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. Uh, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. A rebellion that ends, but was born anew in the heart of humanity. As Satan comes to our first parents and convinces them to believe what? God, you're not good. If you were good, you wouldn't hold things back from us. God, you're not great. If you were great, you'd give us more power. God, you're not glorious. As a result, you're not worth worshiping and submitting to. The lie believed results in what? I should be autonomous. I should be separate from this God. I should be on my own. I should be in control. I should be in the one in power. I should be the one that's glorified. And our first parents believed that lie. And as a result, every single one of us have believed that lie. And you hear it in the lyrics of Pink. The evidence is all around us. Well, Satan tempted Jesus with those same lies. In Luke chapter 4, we read about how 
Uh, Jesus was hungry after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. And, and, the, and the lie that Satan shows up with is, is you don't need God to provide for you, you can provide for yourself. And the second temptation is, if you'll bow down to me, Jesus, then I'll give you all the, worship, the, the control and power that you could ever want. And the third lie is, if, if you'll throw yourself off this, this temple mount, then the angels will, will rescue you, and everybody will see it and know how awesome that is. I'll give you the glory you were made for. Jesus doesn't believe the lie. And he chooses not to be autonomous or separated from his father. And he chooses not to wrestle control away from the divine plan. And he chooses not to find glory apart from the Trinity. He stays faithful. He's the only human being that has ever lived that didn't buy the lie. Do you see, in these groups of people or individuals, do you see yourself? I am one of those Sanhedrin. The reality is, is, is in, in here, the, 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 there is this desire to reject God, to believe lies about him so that I can be independent, so that I can be autonomous, so that, so that I can come up with my own plan for how I'm going to live out my life. I am Pontius Pilate. Because the reality is, is in order to maintain control, to have power, to have authority, I'm willing, and I've done it, to sacrifice justice. I am Herod. And I've tried to use God and manipulate God to treat him like a genie in the bottle or a jokester to do tricks for me. I have tried to, to use him to give me more glory and more power and more honor. That's me. And, and here's the good news of the whole situation. I'm also Barabbas. See, Jesus' response to me is, think I'm not good. I am so good, I'm going to be the sacrifice that takes away your sin. You think I'm not good? I am so holy and righteous and perfect, I'm going to die for you. You think I'm not great? You think I'm not in control or powerful? Look at my divine plan. It was put into place long before you were born. That plan included my death, but also my resurrection and my ascension. That's my plan. God and the Father and I, we worked that out. I'm so in control, I'm going to the cross. You say I'm not glorious. You say I'm not worthy of submitting to or worshiping or giving your life to. You want to know how glorious I am? I've left my throne in heaven. I have left all glory in order to become the lowest of men in order to die the most humiliating of deaths so that I can conquer for you. You see, he is good and he is great and he is glorious. But he's also gracious because he responds to me and he responds to my sin by taking my place and letting me go free. See, that morning, Barabbas woke up thinking he was going to die. 
He woke up that day thinking he was, he was going to be executed. He was going to be the one hung on a Roman cross. Instead, a Roman guard comes to him and unshackles his hands and feet and opens the prison door, and he gets to walk out. Now, now Luke, in, in, in particular, Luke in fashion, he doesn't tell us the end of the story. Have you noticed that about Luke? But, but he doesn't tell us what happens next. Like he doesn't say that there, there Barabbas is and he, gets to, he goes and he raises a Christian family and he plants a church and he dies a martyr's death. We don't see that. Instead, there's this looming question mark over Barabbas' head. What will you do with the freedom you've been given? I'm going to ask uh, you to pass the communion trays now. I'm going to close the message by partaking of communion together. And if you're here this morning and, uh, and you, would, you would just simply say, you know what, this Jesus that you're talking about, um, he's, he, he's not who you say he is to me. Um, he's, he's not the one that I submit to. Um, and, and, and if you're here and you would say that, I want to say, that's, well, I'm glad you're here. Um, first of all, and I don't want to make you feel like you have to participate in a statement that you can't, you don't fully believe in. And so um, there's lots of reasons why we don't partake of communion on a Sunday morning. So if people pass those elements they don't take, there's nothing to read into that. Right? If you're here this morning and you would say, I know who I am in this story. I see myself in the individuals of, of this story. I know what I deserve as a result of this. But Jesus has been good. And Jesus has been great. And Jesus has been glorious for me. You don't just get to identify with the Pharisees and, and, and Herod and Pilate. You get to identify with Barabbas. Because of Jesus, you get to go free. You get to go free. Barabbas deserved death. He deserved the punishment he was getting. But Jesus, he's not just good, he's not just great, he's not just glorious, he's also gracious, and he gives us the gift of himself. You hold it in, in your hand, something very, very simple. The symbols that you hold in your hand, take out, take out that little piece of bread and hold it in the palm of your hand. Jesus put himself into your hands. God took on flesh and put himself into the hands of angry sinners. What you hold in your hand is a symbol of the fact that the second person of the Trinity came and he said, this is my body and it's given for you. It's given for you. And when you partake of it, remember this. The second symbol is that of the, of the cup. It, it, it points to Jesus' blood, which, which gives us what we call a new covenant. It's a new relationship we get to have with God. Because of what Jesus does for you and for I, we're no longer enemies. We're no longer outsiders. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer strangers. Instead, we've been brought into the family of God. You are an adopted son. You are an adopted daughter. You are a child of the Most High God. And, and, and you have reconciliation because of the blood of Christ symbolized in this little cup. You see, because of Jesus, you get to walk free. 
And before you take those elements, I would challenge you to, to, to spend some time and answer this question. How will you walk in the freedom that this symbolizes? How will you walk in the freedom that this symbolizes? Will you take the freedom you've been given and walk in light of it? To repent when you're tempted to believe the lies again and turn to faith for the truth of who God is and what he's done for you through Christ. See, the reality is uh, you will go from here and you will be tempted to believe the lies and you will again. But his grace will be sufficient for that. And every time you believe he isn't good, every time you believe that you're supposed to be the one in charge, every time you believe that you're supposed to be pursuing your own glory, turn again and find an endless, bottomless cup of grace for you. I'll close with this thought. To rephrase Muggeridge, my own depravity is my most empirically verifiable reality but at the same time, my most resisted fact. This is true of me. If there was some way that you could put a camera on me that not just uh, recorded my outward actions, but could record my heart and what's going on inside it and record my, my mind and my thoughts and the things that I thought, you would see, in just a matter of a few minutes, my depravity would not be hard to prove. And, and I fight against that so often. And intellectually, I try to, to show the world how really good I am. Hide all the, all the depravity that's actually there. But how freeing is it to know? How freeing is it to know that because of Jesus, because of his sacrifice for me, that doesn't matter. When the Father looks at me, he sees his Son because he took my place. Will you pray with me? Holy Father, thank you for the plan. Thank you for the plan that saved us. Lord Jesus, even now you are at the right hand of God the Father in all power. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for being so good that you were the perfect sacrifice. Thank you for your greatness being so powerful your plan overcame sin and death. Thank you for your gloriousness. You alone deserve worship and honor. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the grace that sets me.